Our sermon text, it's, it's Matthew 5, verse 4. And so, for the sake of context, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. So you're there. Matthew 5. We begin reading in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when, his, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is our text today, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for how your word strengthens us and comforts us on this journey as we make our way to heaven. And so, Father, we ask you right now in these moments to do just that. Lord, re-speak the truth of your word to us this day. By your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to our hearts. Encourage us and console us through it. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen. As you all well know, one of the most difficult and painful realities of living in a fallen, broken world is the reality of sin, our own sin, as well as the sin of others. While for believers, all sin is forgiven sin, praise the Lord for that. While all sin is forgiven sin, regret and sorrow for past sin sometimes still lingers. Our hearts are saddened as well when in the daily fight with sin we stumble and we fall in various ways. We also experience grief, sometimes deep grief over the sins of other people, a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a dear friend. Such sins may have hurt us personally or in some cases other people that we deeply love. Sometimes it's cultural sins that grieve us. Anytime that I read the news online, I lament where the culture has gone and its rebellion against God. And I know from talking with many of you that many of you can can relate to that. On this side of eternity, the sorrow that we feel because of sin and its consequences sometimes sometimes 
devastating consequences. It's not always easy to process or to cope with. And thankfully in our text today, in this one single verse, our Lord Jesus, the shepherd of our souls, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, he, in this verse, provides divine perspective and encouragement intended to comfort every soul. Every soul that grieves sin and its sad consequences. This morning we're going to look more closely at this one verse, but first, some context. The context of the Beatitudes, as Jeremy mentioned last week, is the Sermon on the Mount, where a primary theme in this sermon is life in the kingdom of God, or life in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, many of you know, are synonymous terms. They're synonymous terms for the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of our King Jesus as distinct from the kingdom of this world. The theme of life in the kingdom is evident in a number of verses. So here's just a brief sampling from the Sermon on the Mount. You'll recognize many of these verses. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In the Beatitudes, Jesus aims to help the original twelve and all disciples to understand what it truly means to live as citizens of the kingdom of Christ as distinct from the kingdom of this world. And our Lord does so primarily by means of paradox. So, quick English grammar review for those of you who've been out of school, like me, for a little while. This is right from the dictionary. A paradox is a tenet or proposition contrary to received opinion, an assertion or sentiment that seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense. That which in appearance or terms is absurd, but yet may be true in fact. So in the Beatitudes, what's happening is our Lord makes statements that are just that. They're paradoxes. On the surface, to a first-time reader, these statements might seem Contradictory, perhaps even absurd, but upon further discovery, they provide penetrating and powerful insight into what it means and what it does not mean to live as a disciple of Christ and citizen of his kingdom, again, as opposed to a citizen of the kingdom of this world. 
G.K. Chesterton captures this reality well when he writes this. On first reading, the Sermon on the Mount, you feel that it turns everything upside down. But the second time you read it, you discover that it turns everything right side up. The first time you read it, you feel that it is impossible. The second time, you feel that nothing else is possible. In summary, Chesterton is saying when you first read the Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount, you might think, this can't be right. This seems upside down. It seems really off. But when you read it again and again, your entire perspective changes. And your way of seeing reality comes into line with our Lord's way of seeing Reality. When you read it again, everything is turned right side up. And you think and you feel deeply when you're within your soul. How could it be otherwise? So in verse 3, last week's sermon text, Jesus says, you can glance there, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, bless, blessed or happy as some prefer to translate it. And Jeremy talked about that. Happy are you who know how deeply and truly sinful you are. (laughs) Upon first reading those words, both in the first century and today, this can sound absurd. Most people associate blessed and happy with those of high self-esteem, who are confident and self-assured, not with those who are deeply aware of their sin and their need for a savior. Yet this amazing paradox beckons us more deeply into gospel truth. Jesus came to bless not those who seem to have their act all together, but to lavishly bless and to save pitiable sinners like you and like me who say like the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Theirs, Jesus says, is the kingdom of heaven. And in our verse today, Jesus does something very similar. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Or as some would translate it, happy are those who mourn. And again, at first, that just doesn't sound quite right. So we think, did you really say that, Jesus? Happy are those who mourn? (laughs) Look look at the text. (laughs) It's right there. That is what Jesus said. Blessed, happy are those who mourn. Again, it's a paradox. On the surface, it sounds absurd, even ridiculous. So how are we to understand it? Well, in answering that question, it is helpful to realize, first, Jesus is not referring to a positive feeling when he says, happy or blessed. He's not saying those who feel mournful actually really feel quite happy. 
He's not saying, see that person over there crying? They aren't really sad. They're happy. (laughs) That is ridiculous and quite obviously not what the Son of God, not what Jesus means. In seeking to understand this beatitude, it is critical to understand that in Jesus' usage of the term blessed or happy, he is not referring to an emotional feeling. Hear this. He's not referring to an emotional feeling, but rather to an objective state. So what Jesus is saying is that objectively speaking, okay, objectively speaking, in an ultimate sense, from a heavenly kingdom perspective, there is a kind of person who is in a happy, spiritually blessed, flourishing position and estate, even though, by all outward appearances, it might not seem like it at all. It might not seem like it at all. And that person is the disciple of the Lord Jesus who mourns sin. Who mourns his sin and who mourns the sin of others. It is that person who in reality, from God's perspective, Jesus said, is the blessed, the happy, the fortunate one. Most commentators agree that when Jesus speaks of mourning here, he's primarily focused, he's primarily focused on mourning for sin. And as I've studied the text, I really I agree with that. D.A. Carson, one of my favorite scholars to read, he explains it very well. He says this, The godly remnant of Jesus' day weeps. They weep because of the humiliation of Israel. But they understand that it comes from personal and corporate sins. The psalmist testified, Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. What Carson is pointing out here is that the godly faithful remnant of Israelites who were living in the first century, they mourned that they were under foreign, under Roman, under Gentile domination and rule. And they mourned not just for, for the rule of Gentiles, but they mourned for the sin and idolatry that got them there and how they themselves had participated in those sins that got them there. Remember when John the Baptist came, he came proclaiming a baptism of what? You can say it out loud. Repentance. It was a baptism of repentance. So if you read the Gospel of Matthew in that section, you'll see Matthew says the people were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So people came to John mourning, mourning for their sin, mourning for their idolatry. Why? Well, so that they would then be included in the incredible joy, blessing, and comfort of the coming Messiah, who John was announcing and and pointing to through his ministry. If you think about it, the whole purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was to help people to mourn repentantly for their sins 
in preparation to receive Jesus and the grace and the mercy and the comfort that Jesus provides. John the Baptist's message could be summarized in a phrase. No mourning, no comfort. No mourning, no comfort. From John the Baptist's vantage point, and more importantly, Jesus' vantage point, those who mourned in in this repentant way, like those who came to the River Jordan to be baptized, they were blessed. They were the ones who were blessed, not the rest of apostate Israel like the self-righteous Pharisees, who, yes, also hated foreign rule, and yet failed to grieve the sin, idolatry, and rebellion that got them there to the place that they were in the first place. Likewise, still today, in Jesus' eyes, the category of blessed is defined in part by poverty of spirit and mourning for sin. We see how he fills the category out throughout the Beatitudes, but we see here in verses 2 and 3 that the category of blessed is defined in part by poverty of spirit and mourning for sin. Jesus' words here help us to see you can possess all the riches in the world. You can have good health for a lifetime. You can be popular and famous and have all the accolades you can even be you can even be a very spiritual and religious person but if you do not mourn for the sin and evil that is in your own heart and if you do not mourn sin when you see it in others and in the world around you well Jesus is clear you are disqualified from the blessing he speaks of in verse 4, as we will see momentarily, is spiritual and eternal in nature. And the opposite is true as well. If you are impoverished and destitute of all earthly comforts, and yet you are poor in spirit, and deeply grieve and mourn your own sin and the sin of others, you should know the Lord Jesus pronounces lavish blessing upon you. Now, that's that's not to say that earthly prosperity disqualifies someone from this blessing and that poverty qualifies them. Not so. In fact, Jesus' words have nothing to do whatsoever with earthly prosperity. Jesus is not speaking to that here. His implied point is simply this. You can be truly blessed by God from a divine perspective and from a divine perspective be considered fortunate and flourishing and yet possess absolutely nothing that the world says a person needs to be happy. So are you poor in spirit? Are you aware of your own sinfulness and your own sin? Do you mourn the sad consequences of your sin? 
And do you grieve sin you see in family members, friends, co-workers? Do you grieve sin that you see in the culture around you? Do you grieve sin you see in the world? If so, know this. Jesus calls you blessed. He calls you blessed. And He, Jesus, your Savior, the Son of God, and Lord of all, He pronounces blessing over your life. To be poor in spirit, as we learned last week, is to be sober-minded and humbly aware of our sins and our sinfulness. In our beatitude today, which is very closely related, we see that it is not sufficient to be aware of our sins. We must also grieve them. If you think about this, this is, this is radically countercultural. We live in a time where in the world, and at times even in the church, as well, where sin, where violating God's laws and commands is treated ever so lightly. In the culture, typically, sin is not even acknowledged as such. It's not even acknowledged as sin. Violating God's word in obvious and egregious ways has been become so normalized that it's like, it's like drinking water. It's like eating food or breathing. And I, don't, I don't need to give you a comprehensive list of the sins of our, of our culture. You are more than aware of such things. The point I'm making here is this. It is right and good and appropriate that we as believers lament this. That we mourn the sin in our culture and its consequences. And that we weep at what we see. The United States as a nation is not first century Israel or the covenant people of God, but there is, there is a parallel. Just as the faithful Jews in the first century lamented the sins of their nation and they lamented them deeply and they resulted in foreign domination and rule, just as they lamented their sins, We are right to lament the sins of our nation as well. We're right to do that. We're right to to lament them and then to pray. To pray for another revival. Another great awakening. That millions would repent and stream to Christ. And that the effects would be felt throughout the entire culture. This happened. In the 1700s, under the ministry of men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, were dead churches who had unbelievers in them, were awakened to the realities of sin and death and eternal judgment. And they turned to Christ by the thousands and the millions. And cultures were transformed. It wasn't heaven, obviously, but cult, it made a difference. The effects of those revivals were felt for decades afterwards, uh, both in the U.S. colonies as well as in Great Britain. 
where the great awakening was taking place. So I, I, I both lament and pray for our nation almost daily in these ways. And I know many of you do. If you don't, I would invite you to do that. Let's lament and weep the sins of our nation, but also be praying for our country that God would move, that he would move in a powerful way. All that said, I trust you agree, it is quite hypocritical if we as believers decry and lament sins in the culture, which we should do, and yet tolerate and fail to mourn our own sins. (laughs) And sadly, we evangelicals, we are quite adept at this. We simultaneously appeal to the culture. We say, stop your sexual immorality. That's wrong. That's evil. And yet it's a known fact, and statistics show that Internet pornography is a, not a small, but a major problem in the church. And just thinking about this, Could it be in some cases that Christian men and women have become so accustomed to this culturally acceptable sin that they fail to take it seriously and to sufficiently mourn it? I'm thankful for those believers I know who do grieve their sin rightly and are faithfully seeking to repent in these ways. I'm grateful for that and see that as an evidence of God's grace. And the Spirit's work in friends' lives. Even so, it is critically important that we soberly consider if we hope to help unbelievers mourn their sins, repent of their sins, and flee to Christ, we cannot take sin lightly ourselves. We can't. For the sake of our witness, For the sake of our witness, for the sake of our evangelism, in the church, in the household of God, we must be serious about mourning and repenting of our own sins. Not just sexual sins, all sins. Whatever sins we may struggle with. And as I thought about this, In order for this to happen, it is essential that we grow, that we as the people of God grow in our understanding of both the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin such that we as Christians see sin, see sin for the affront to God and offense to God that all sin really is. If you haven't read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, I would encourage you to read that book, pick it up, and read it as soon as possible. Read it as soon as possible. Someone would be hard-pressed to read that book and not come away with a more biblically calibrated conscience and heightened awareness of seriousness, of the seriousness and sinfulness of all sin. Of all sin. And that includes uh, non-scandalous, more respectable sins, such as gossip, mildly deceitful speech, the envious thought, the brief, impure thought, etc. Jerry Bridges wrote a great book before he passed away for the church. And it was entitled Respectable Sins. And I believe 
the subtitle, I don't have it in front of me, was Confronting the Sins That We Tolerate. As Christians, there are all kinds of sins that are not in the scandalous category that would never get published, <laughs> you know, on the front page of, of a news publication. Nevertheless, they, they grieve the heart of the Lord, and the Lord wants us to be sensitive to those things and repent of them as the Lord convicts us. As Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, all the Christian life is repentance. I believe that. I know you do as well. Repentance and mourning for sin go together. So what that means practically is mourning for sin in a non-legalistic, Christ-centered, grace-oriented way ought to be a daily feature of the Christian life. Just an aside, um, there is irony here. Such mournful repentance leads to a daily celebration of Christ. That brings incredible joy. Mourning and joy go together, such that joy actually is the dominant note of the Christian life. But that's another sermon with another paradox (laughs) for another day. End of the aside. In the Lord's Prayer, one chapter over in chapter 6, Jesus invites us to pray as part of our regular rhythm of prayer. Forgive us our debts. And lead us not into temptation. Why does he call believers, his disciples in the kingdom to pray that way? Because temptation and sin is a daily reality that we all confront. And thankfully, dear brothers and sisters, when we pray this way, as we take our sins seriously and mourn them, we can rest assured, as the psalmist says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That was David repenting of his sin. With Bathsheba, aren't you grateful God is gracious and merciful to us? As we repent, as we come to him mournfully, he meets us. Another thing I want to mention here that is important to talk about is it's right and appropriate for us to grieve not only cultural sin and personal sins, but also the sins of others uh, who have hurt us or those that, that we are close to? There is a brokenness some experience that is not primarily due to their own sin, but it's due to the sins of others. And we should be clear. Those who mourn in verse 4 includes those individuals. It includes the mistreated. It includes the neglected. It includes the abused. There are certain sad, grievous, and tragic situations where the right and proper response is primarily deep lament. Deep lament and weeping. And for those who perhaps in this room have experienced such things, and I know some have, please know that we as a congregation weep with those who weep. 
We weep with you. We lament with you. More importantly, God himself laments. God himself laments and God himself weeps with you. And not only does he weep with you, he promises in this passage to immeasurably bless you. So in the first half of verse 4, Jesus pronounces blessing on those who mourn. In the second half of verse 4, he tells us exactly how they are blessed. Let's look at the, our verse again together. Blessed are those who mourn. Let's read the second half together out loud. For they shall be comforted. Say it again. For they shall be comforted. So how are those who mourn, who grieve, who lament their own sin and the sins of others, in fact, blessed by God? Well, they are blessed in this way, Jesus says, in that they shall be comforted. So the promised blessing, hear this, the promised blessing that Jesus gives to those who mourn, is nothing less than the comfort that Jesus himself provides. The blessing isn't the mourning per se. Okay? Some have misread it that way. That somehow mourning is a blessing and there may be a way that's true, but that's not what Jesus is saying. The blessing is not the mourning. The blessing is the comfort that Jesus himself gives to those who mourn. In the Beatitudes that are verses 3 and 4, poor in spirit and those who mourn, those two Beatitudes, in those Beatitudes, Jesus uses language that intentionally borrows from the words of the prophet Isaiah. It's really amazing. He's speaking in language that is reminiscent of the prophet Isaiah. So the, the original audience, as they heard Jesus, would have been hearing Isaiah too, as Jesus was talking. So he's borrowing from the language of Isaiah in Isaiah 61. And that's why in order to better understand the blessing of comfort that Jesus is promising here, it is critical that we look at that text, that we look at that text he borrowed from. In Isaiah 61, this is wonderful. The prophet Isaiah prophesying regarding the coming Messiah, declares this. And I think we have it on the screen. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up what? The brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort who? Who? All. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. See the theme of mourning again? To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness 
instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. (laughs) That he may be glorified. So this this helps us greatly, brothers and sisters. (laughs) This helps us greatly to better understand Jesus' promise of comfort to those who mourn. The comfort Jesus provides is unlike any comfort that the world has to offer. It is not merely the comfort that might come from a pat on the back or a hug from a friend or a loved one, as nice as that is. No, the comfort Jesus promised to those who mourn is the comprehensive comfort that comes through Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, and his Saving work. It is a robust comfort. It is a strong comfort. It is a mighty comfort. It is a true comfort that has been secured in blood. It has been secured by the blood of the Lamb. And is to be experienced by every believer. Every single one. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came, he said. Isaiah said and Jesus said. To bind up the brokenhearted. He came to comfort all who mourn, he gave, came to give his people the oil of gladness instead of mourning. And he secured this comfort for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. It was not a cheap comfort. Comfort purchased in blood. According to Scripture, we experience this comfort in part now. As we sang in the last song, of our worship set, we will experience it in full at the return of the Lord. Praise God, we can experience some of the comfort Jesus promises now, today, in this age. Now, today, in this age, we can know the comfort of no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. We can know today in this era. The comfort of sins forgiven. And conscience cleansed. We can know the comfort today right now. That we are sons and we are daughters of the living God. We can know the comfort of being loved. By being loved. By God Himself. (laughs) We can also know the comfort of the Spirit's presence, as the hymn says, to cheer and to guide. The NIV translates the term paraclete. 
The name for the Holy Spirit is Comforter. That's who he is. Where would we be without the Holy Spirit? Where would you be without the Holy Spirit? Opening your eyes to truth. When in the morning or evening you open this book. And God speaks to you. Where would you be? There is comfort through the Holy Spirit. And we also know the comfort. Of the promise of eternity. We have God's promises. We know in this age the, pro- the comfort of the promise of eternity. In the presence of God. So. We experience the comfort Jesus promises in this beatitude in part now. In part now. In part in this life. And one day when Christ returns, our comfort will be full, comprehensive, and complete. In Revelation, John says, He, that is Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful promise, which applies not only to grief for sin and grief for the sins of others, but to all sorrow. All sorrow, no matter what the cause. Sickness, illness, disease. Conflict, death. Wonderfully, God's word assures us, however far our pain goes, however far our pain goes, his comfort reaches even further. I want to say that again. However far our pain goes, however far your pain goes, for some of you, it goes really far. However far your pain goes, his comfort reaches even further. The word of God says he will wipe away every tear. Someone may say, Chris, you have no idea how much I'm hurting inside. No idea how great the pain is. And that person would be accurate to say that and right to say that I don't but hear this God does the one who made you and formed you in your mother's room the one who saved you he does know how great the pain is and he says every single tear wiped away forever.
So I ask you, are you grieving today? Grieving for your own sin? Or the sin of someone, some other person? Or are you grieving for any other reason? Any other reason at all, for that matter? If so, hear the authoritative word of the Lord today to you. Let it sink ever so deep into your soul. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the comfort you so generously provide for those who put their faith in you. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to receive and to experience your lavish comfort today. Help us also to anticipate in faith that glorious day when you return, when we will be fully and completely comforted. Lord, we look forward to that day. We love you. Thanks for bringing us here this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.